0: Aside from his faith, Abraham, Father Abraham, he's known really by two specific things, the tent and the altar. As it pertains to the tent, it's significant to note that prior to God's appearing, before Abram had experienced God's amazing transformative grace, we were introduced to Abram the urbanite. Abram, born and raised, a city slicker, living in Ur of the Chaldeans, which at the time, archaeological evidence points to this being an active, advanced metropolis. Abram, while living there, enjoying the benefits of the city, we're told that he made a living by crafting and selling idols to the moon god. Abram enjoyed the comforts, the security of the city, the hustle and the bustle of Gotham. And yet, aside from all of that, something changes in Abram. Abram, when he makes this decision to obey God's call, to leave the city of Haran for a land that God would show him, a transformation takes place. He goes from being a city slicker to being kind of a a rural backwoods nomad. Like understand, Abram left his home in the city and he became this nomad, not only from the, the practical elements of the fact that now he made his living as a shepherd. He would need to move his flocks from field to field to field. But Abram wanted the freedom, the ability to walk with God, no matter where that journey might have taken him. He lets go of the city life. He cuts ties. He picks up a tent. He gets on the move because he wanted to be able to go wherever God would lead him. You'd be correct in saying, Abraham chose an exciting odyssey with God over a stable home on this earth, which is why the tent came to represent his relationship with the world around him. As we noted last Sunday, while called to a land of promise, this land was nowhere to be found on this earth. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, we're told that Abram waited for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. The interesting point concerning Abram's life is that he never settles down. He never stays in one place for too long. Abraham never found a place, a location on this earth to call home. Why? for his heart longed for a future destiny in heaven. Abram. He exchanged all that this fallen world had to offer because he knew that it could never, ever, ever compare to a life he had discovered walking with God. Much the same way that believers are described by the apostle in 1 Peter 2, verse 11 Abraham was what? You would say he was the quintessential sojourner whose home was not this earth. He was a pilgrim simply passing through, much the same as you and I. As it pertains to the powerful and personal implications of having such a perspective in regards to the world, Charles Spurgeon, he wrote, The Christian knows no change with regard to God. He may be rich today and poor tomorrow. He may be sickly today and well tomorrow. He may be in happiness today. Tomorrow he may be distressed. But there is no change with regard to his relationship with God. If he loved me yesterday, he's loved me today. My unmoving mansion of rest is my blessed Lord. Let prospects be blighted. Let hopes be blasted. Let joy be withered. Let mildews destroy everything. I have lost nothing of what I have in God. He is my strong habitation whereunto I can continually resort. And then he says this, I am a pilgrim in the world, but at home in my God. And the earth I wander, but in God I dwell in a quiet habitation. Which is then why Abram is also known by the altar. Think of it like this. If the tent represented his horizontal relationship with the world. It was the altar that came to represent his vertical relationship with God, the tent and the altar. Everywhere that Abram goes throughout this land he had been called to, the land of Canaan, you will know that he's constantly erecting altars and making offerings. Now, we noted last Sunday that this was not always a good thing. As we study... Abram's life, you're going to discover that there are two distinctly different motivations behind the altars that Abram builds. On certain occasions, Abram will erect an altar as response to something amazing that God did, or God said, or God revealed. However, on other occasions, we're told that Abram builds an altar in order to, quote, call on the name of the Lord. We saw this last Sunday in Bethel. Ironically, it's on these occasions where he builds an altar to call in the name of the Lord that God never answers. Now on the surface, these secondary altars and offerings designed to coincide with Abram's appeal to God, they seem innocent enough, don't they? Full disclosure, every pastor I listen to, going through the book of Genesis. consider these moments, present them in a good light. And yet I'm convinced what Abraham was doing in these situations where he builds an altar to call on the name of the Lord was not only terrible, but it's not worthy of being celebrated or for that matter, even being emulated. Consider that these altars were not built as a response to God's goodness, nor were they motivated by his faith in God's promises. Instead, these particular altars where Abram's attempt to get something from God by making an offering. Think of it like this, that Abram in building these altars to call on the name of the Lord, he's seeking to earn through the altar and the offering to earn God's favor (laughs) in a profound way. What's happening in these moments? And there's really not a nice way to say it. But Abram, I believe in these moments, is reverting back to a pagan form of worship that he had come to know and err. Think of it. He's got a problem. We saw it last Sunday. In Bethel, there's this severe famine. What would the pagan do in such a dynamic, in such a situation? Well, I need God to intervene. So I'm going to build an altar. I'm going to make an offering. I'm going to call out to the gods. Right? to intervene on my behalf. That's how the pagans operated. Whether it was the moon god or the sun god, there was all types of sacrifices to do what? To get the gods to intervene on behalf of man. It's paganism. Now, while this might sound in some regards like a reasonable approach, the true God, the God that Abraham's crying out to, who finds this method abominable, there should be no surprise that God doesn't respond to Abram when he does this and these situations. For we understand this is fundamentally not the way that God interacts with humanity. Abraham's relationship with God, everything we know about it thus far, similar to anyone's relationship with God before Abram or to come after, his relationship was top Down. It was never bottom up. It was a relationship based in God's favor given to Abraham and never earned by Abraham. It was a relationship initiated how? God appeared to Abram while he was in Ur as a pagan. He did nothing. It was initiated by God's grace, never through Abram's merit. What's he doing? He's trying to make an offering for God's favor. How tragic. (laughs) Understand why this approach is doomed from the beginning. If God responded to Abram's call on account of his offering, it would have validated and legitimized the offering. And yet, please understand, there is no offering sinful man can ever make to gain access to God. Consider in the garden. It was God who offered the very first offering. Why? To cover the nakedness of sinful man. Adam and Eve had made their own coverings. They were inadequate. After pronouncing the curses, we're told that God provides them fleece, wool, adequate, effective covering. Now God's point And doing this and making an offering to provide covering was to illustrate a simple fact that God would have to make an offering for man, for man to ever have access back to him. That's the point. God made an offering for man so man could come back and make an offering to him. It's within that context, with that in mind, that every offering, offering that has ever been made to God since that moment since the garden it falls into one of two categories one it's an offering that's made as a response to the access that's been provided through God's sufficient offering concerning the Old Testament it was an offering made in faith to what? to a coming savior a coming sacrifice it was looking towards the cross That's how it was offered in faith. In the New Testament, it's it's back to the cross. We have the luxury of seeing what Jesus did, of knowing what he did. The first type of offering, it's a response offering to all that God has done for me, to the sacrifice God has made for me. But there's a second category. And that's the fact that sometimes we make offerings as an attempt to gain access to God apart from his sufficient offering. Think about it. Cain and Abel, two offerings. Cain's accepted, Abel's rege- uh, Cain's rejected, Abel's accepted. The difference was what? Abel's sacrifice of blood was done in faith, we're told in Hebrews. Faith in what? Faith in the offering that God would make to provide access to God. That sacrifice why was Cain rejected? He decided there was a better way. He was trying to earn a favor God was wanting to give. And God always rejects that. Fundamentally, think of it this way. One approach is accepted by God for it's based in a faith in Jesus. While the other is completely rejected for it claims a way other than Jesus. And there is no other way to the Father except through him. Keep in mind, two different motivations behind Abram's altars. Two vastly divergent results we'll see leads us to two points. First, God will never allow our relationship with him to become based on anything other than his grace. I hope you know that this morning. Any attempt to have favor with God apart from his grace will be rejected by God. It will be resisted by God. It will not be blessed by God. Your favor with God, it's, it's, it's either Jesus alone or it's nothing. There's no other way. But secondly, what we learn here from Abraham's altars is that our offerings, and what do we mean by offerings? Well, I, in a practical sense, it could be a monetary offering, you know that you're going to give God of your tithe, of your finances, of your resources. Maybe it's an offering of praise, of worship. Service, an offering of your time, your energies, to be a blessing to others. If you are doing any of those things to get something from God, not only will you not get something, you'll find God resisting you. That's not how he plays. Now, should we give? Should we sing? Should we serve? Yes, but why? because of Jesus, the offering he made for us and what that's done right here. That's why we're told that the Lord loves a hilarious giver, a cheerful giver. God, you've given me so much. Here you go. I'm gonna give it right back. This wallet, it's not not my wallet. It's it's your wallet. My my, my question, how much am I gonna keep of your money? But it's done of of a cheerful heart as a response, not to earn something. His grace, his grace, and that while we were all a sinner, Christ died for us. Friend, as with Abram, there was nothing that you did to initiate God's first contact. I hope you know that. It wasn't as though God was kind of evaluating and was like, oh my goodness gracious, he's not part of the fold yet. Such a good guy, isn't a believer. Well, let's go down and work with him. He needs to join the A-team. I can't believe that. Like, there was nothing about you that was special. Nothing about you that was significant. Nothing about you that merited or warranted saving. All the contrary. And yet God saved you. Why? Because he loves you. Because he cares about you. That is based in his favor for you. There's nothing that you did to initiate God's first contact, nor is there anything other than a natural response of obedience that you can do to continue that contact moving forward. Your relationship was initiated by God and will be sustained by God as long as you place your faith in Jesus and walk with Him. Psalms chapter 40, verses 5 and 6, David writes, Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works, which you have done. Your thoughts towards us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare or speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin you did not require. Notice what David's doing. He's saying, Your blessings towards us, it's so great, I can't even count it. I can't measure it. I can't even fathom it. And none of that is based on what? Burnt offering or sacrifices. You require none of that for me to receive all of that. There's only one offering that matters, Jesus's. And without delay, let's pick up where we left off in chapter 12. Abram, at this juncture, he's left Haran. He's made it to the land of promise. And yet while in Bethel, there was a severe famine, now making life in this land, God had called him to, difficult. The question we were kind of left with was, will Abram trust in God's promises, hunker down, God will never guide me where he won't provide for me, You've led me to this land. It's a famine. It's tough. It's difficult. That's how life rolls. Will I trust you? Will I rely on you? Or will I kind of take the easy way and move south for greener pastures? Sadly, Abram's trust wavers. We read in Genesis 12, verse 10, that Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there. For the famine was severe in the land. Verse 11, it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, indeed, I know that you're a beautiful woman of countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me and will let you live. That's kind of interesting. Uh, they, they seem to have a moral quandary with adultery, but not murder. So it's like, we can't commit adultery, so we'll kill you first. And then it'll be okay. So Abram continues, Please say, you're my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, that I might live because of you. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful, as Abram suspected. So the princes of Pharaoh also saw her, commended her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh treated Abram well. For her sake, he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord plagues Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here's your wife, take her and go away. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him. They sent him away and his wife and all that he had. A few weeks back, when we were first introduced to Abram, I made the point that Genesis records for us more of Abram's failures than it does his triumphs. There's no doubt that this particular story is a great example to this point. Seriously, you read the same text I did. Father Abraham The man we admire, the man scripture calls the friend of God, let's not sugarcoat what happened. He's a coward. I mean, he's a total coward. Think about it. Not only has Abram attempted to barter with God through pagan worship. Didn't work. Then failed to trust God's provisions. Leaves the land of promise for Egypt. But then, as he makes his way south, fearing that the Egyptians might kill him so that they can make then sexual advances towards his wife, Sarai, what does Abraham do? He creates a ruse that he and Sarai are siblings so that he can save his own hide without even the slightest concern with how this dynamic might not play out very well for Sarai. Terrible. Then to make matters even worse, when they do arrive in Egypt, And she garners the attention of the princes of Pharaoh because she was very beautiful, just as Abram feared. What does this mighty man, this pillar of faith do? Does he break off the ruse to protect, to defend the integrity of his wife? Does he choose to fight for love, for honor? Is he chivalrous in any way? Nope we're told Sarai was taken to Pharaoh's house, presumably to become part of his harem. And Abram does nothing to stop them. Sure, we're told he was treated well as a result, but don't mistake the fact that Abram appears willing to stand idly by and allow his wife to be sexually solicited by Pharaoh. Abram as a man, should be embarrassed. That's not admirable. I'm not going to present this in some twisted light to make it appear what it's not. It's horrible. Here we have the father of faith withering in fear. There is no doubt. He should have never left Canaan to start with. But what's happening here in Egypt is inexcusable. Abraham not only failed to step up, he wasn't even a man. He didn't defend his wife. Honestly, Abram is the last thing you would ever say to be Prince Charming. The contrary. This is the type of man you really don't want your daughter to marry. Oh, I know know you want to take my wife to sexually uh, take advantage of her. And uh, But she's not my wife, just my sister. Just want to let you know. Uh, I'm just going to stand Okay, see ya, hun. See ya. Hope all works out well. What an idiot. Like, terrible. That's not sugar it. Aside from the obvious, I believe what makes Abram's actions even more egregious is how condescending and uninterested he appears to be concerning Sarai. Like, you notice, he doesn't appear to be very worried about her well-being, about what will happen to her in a harem, about the things she'll be exposed to, the things that will be done to her. He, he doesn't even seem to be concerned about her getting pregnant, right? God's whole promises is based on what? A child of promise. He's not worried about Sarai getting knocked up. Like they'd been trying for years to get pregnant with no success. We're even told that Scripture affirms that Sarai's barren. Could it be that Abram's like, she's not going to get pregnant anyway? Could she maybe, could he maybe have been blaming her for their years of infidelity? Uh, Infertility, excuse me. Totally different meaning there. My point is, my point is, not only is he like, more interested in himself than her, but he's just, he's a fool. Like he is a foolish, selfish, fearful husband who cares clearly more about himself than the well-being of his wife. And yet, this is what I do like about the story. And, and, and ladies, <clears throat> I know none of your husbands probably have ever acted in a foolish, selfish, fearful way. But just in case maybe they have or will in the future, there is an aspect of this story that you should take great encouragement with. While Abraham may have sidestepped his husbandly duties, how amazing is it that God will not stand idly by? You notice that? Like notice, the Lord, Abraham did nothing. But God's like, oh, heck no. Here it comes. You ready, Pharaoh? But boom, plagues. He plagues Pharaoh, plagues his house, we're told, with great plagues, specifically because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So much so that what happens? Pharaoh calls Abraham and he's like, Yo, dude, what's up? Like, Pharaoh was able to connect the dots. Somehow, we have no idea. We have no clue, A, what the great plagues were. You can use your imagination. They were great, terrible. We don't even know how God communicates or allows Pharaoh to make the connection that these plagues were on account of this new woman he's brought into his harem. We have no idea how Pharaoh connects it with Abram's ruse. But there is one thing we can't say with certainty, right? That God defended Sarai's honor even when Abram failed to love his wife in a manner that a husband should love. I always say this when, I'm, when I'm, I'm leading two people into that important commitment. The marriage vows, the marriage covenant. I always take a moment to tell the guy, to remind the, the guy that while she might be your wife, don't forget, she will always be God's daughter. And therefore God takes it very personally what happens to her. And if you sidestep your authority and your ability and your responsibilities, God will intervene. And ladies, that should provide you some encouragement. Whatever situation you might be in, God sees it. And he loves you and he cares about you. On the flip side to it, men, do the opposite of Abraham. Right? Shouldn't have gone to Egypt, but when they came to get his wife, the sword should have come out. Ain't happening. I'm going to go out with some thunder. You ain't messing with my wife, my bride. She's my responsibility to protect and to cherish. Do the opposite of Abraham, but ladies, know that God loves you. Verse 1 of chapter 13. So Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife, all that he had, lot with him, to the south. Abraham, Abram, was very rich in livestock and silver and gold, and he went on his journey from the south, as far as Bethel, to the place where... His tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place of the altar, which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. There's no doubt. Abram plays the fool in Egypt, a place he should have never gone in the first place. Additionally, it's sad that a great man of faith ends up being rebuked by a wicked pagan king, Pharaoh kicked out of the land, tarnishes his witness. Here he is now returning to the place that God always wanted him to be, the land of promise. Here he is, and he calls on the name of the Lord. Now, now there are, as you study this passage, those who point out God's grace here. Because here he is. He's an idiot for going to Egypt. What he does there is deplorable. But he gets rewarded for it, right? He comes back very rich. And so there are pastors that like to point out God's grace in this. I don't buy it. Please understand there is a truth, very applicable here, that God will never bless disobedience. I hope you know that. As a matter of fact, nothing good is ever spawned in our lives when we fail to trust God's promises. Now, God can work through those things, bringing us back to where we should have been, but he doesn't bless disobedience. While it's true on the surface that Abram appears to be blessed in spite of his disobedience, the brutal truth, you should understand this, is that none of the things that he brings back with him from Egypt, none of these things prove to be a blessing. As a matter of fact, you can make the argument that all of these things he gets in Egypt, that he brings back to the land of promise, turn out to be nothing but a curse, that they give him more and more problems. It's interesting to note this phrase, very rich, in the Hebrew literally means to be overloaded with. Don't forget Abram's identity, right? He's known by the tenth, he's a sojourner. Now, though, his ability to move freely is limited. He's got a lot of junk he's got to carry around. Beyond this, it would be more difficult, right, to to directly attribute Abram's stature, his status, as being purely a work of God. People would evaluate Abram's life and say, well, he's got all this stuff, not because of God's hand and God's blessing, but he got it all from Pharaoh. Tarnish his witness. Sadly, as we're about to see, All of this stuff that Abram received is going to directly contribute to a separation that takes place between he and his nephew, which eventually ends very poorly for both Abram and Lot. Additionally, keep in mind, this one act of disobedience, the stuff he gets in Egypt, the things he brings back from Egypt, ends up setting the stage for his greatest failure. Note Of the things he brings back from Egypt, we will find to be a young handmaiden by the name of Hagar. He gets Hagar while in Egypt. Well, verse 5, Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. The land was not able to support them so that they could dwell together. Their possessions were so great, they could not dwell. There was strife, we're told. Between the herdsmen of Abram's flocks and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock, the Canaanites and the Perizzites also dwelt in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. It It is not the whole land before you. Please separate from me. If you take the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot lifted his eyes and saw in the plain of Jordan that it was well watered everywhere before, while well, the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, this area was like the garden of the Lord. Interesting, they're still talking about the garden of Eden. Like the land of Egypt, a land he just came from, right? On Lot's heart, as you go towards Zor. So Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan he journeyed east. So they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan. Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent, even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom, were told, were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And that kind of sets the stage for a later story. Once again, verse 4. We read that Abram returned to Bethel, to the place of the altar which he had made there at the first. And what does he do? He calls on the name of the Lord it would appear, and the context provided now in verse 5, that why was Abram and Bethel calling on the name of the Lord? In much the same way that it had been the famine that called him to call on the Lord in the first place, it seems now that this strife between he and Lot's households is once again causing Abram to call out to God. What should we do? Because of all of the stuff they had acquired in Egypt, our text is clear that they could not dwell together. The land was not able to support them. Ironically, Abram, once again calling out to the Lord in Bethel, as before, but we read about God that He does what? You read anything? Lord speaks, the Lord says, the Lord appears, the Lord like, not a word. Once again, God is silent. And he kind of have to ask why. There are those who make the case that God remains silent in this situation because Lot was still with Abram. Those who argue this, this particular point, they refer back to God's initial command for Abram to do what? To get out of his country, right? To get away from his family and from his father's house. Genesis 12 verse 1. Now, proponents of this view make the case that this strife, that this strife was actually God's way of finally getting Abram to be obedient. He left Ur, obedient? No, wasn't obedient. He brought with him his father, Terah, and Lot, his nephew. Then in Haran, what happens? Terah dies. Well, that's easy to deal with. He sets out to the land. He's still bringing Lot. And People will make the case that here he is. There's this strife. Lot should have never, ever been with him. So this strife is God's way of getting Abraham to be obedient, now to separate from someone he should have never been involved with. (laughs) I don't think I buy that. Like I don't think I agree with that, that explanation. Think about it like this. If this is truly the reason for God's silence, for this strife, then how do you explain that God spoke to Abram when he was in Shechem? even though he had allowed Lot to travel with him from Haran. Like, if God doesn't honor disobedience, how can you make the case that he honors partial obedience? I don't think you can. Like, we must consider why it is that, despite his original command to leave his family behind, that God doesn't appear to have any issue with Lot joining Abram as they made their way from Haran into the land of promise. Have you thought about that at this point? This is a part of this passage that I've always kind of wrestled with. Get out of your country, leave your father's household, leave your family. Okay, I'm gonna bring my father and my nephew. They get to Haran. We have years of waste God not speaking, God not appearing, God not calling. Nothing because of his disobedience. Terah dies. Abraham hears the call, decides to send. He's still bringing Lot. Like, why is that okay? Why is that permissible? He gets to the land of promise. God speaks to him. He sets up an altar. He worships as a response. Lot's there the whole time, and God doesn't seem to have any problems with it then. So why is God having a problem with it now if that's the essence of this strife, for God to get Lot and Abram to finally separate? I think the answer to this might actually be found in Second Peter, specifically chapter 2, verse 7, when the apostle Peter says something crazy. He describes this nephew of Abram with two where he says he's righteous. He calls him righteous Lot. Righteous Lot? Now, we're gonna unpack that more later, especially with, with Lot's story. But I am convinced that while we have no mention of God appearing or specifically calling Lot. It seems likely, via the witness of his uncle Abram, that Lot had placed his faith in a coming Savior, and Haran. As with Abram, it's the only way that Lot could be called righteous. How are you made righteous? By what you do, or by whom you believe in? As Abraham believed what God's promised Savior, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, the only way he could be called righteous Lot is for him at some point to have also placed his faith in God's coming Savior. I think that that's why it's okay for Lot to be with Abram. To this point, do you you notice the word Abram used to describe Lot in in the text we read? Look at verse 8. Abram calls Lot what? He says, We're brethren. Like in the Hebrew, this word literally means brothers of the same parents. But they weren't. This was his brother's son. This was his nephew. Like it it appears by him using this word, by Abram using this word brethren to describe Lot, that Abram made a relational distinction between he and Lot that ran much, much deeper than simply being uncle and nephew. They were brethren brothers, because they both had believed God's promises and placed their faith in that coming Savior. I hope you know, faith in Jesus creates a relational bond between people that runs much deeper than blood. Do you know that? The fact that we've been saved, all of us, by the same grace, yields a commonality that transcends all other differences that followers of Jesus possess not a bond of blood, but one deeper, of spirit. See, that makes us brothers and sisters, part of the same family, the family of God, regardless of our genders or ethnicities, social, economic, educational statuses, political persuasions, nationalities, or all the other ways that the world seeks to divide us. We're saved by grace, and we're filled by his spirit, and that makes us family. Sadly and especially in light of the fact that God had not provided any specific instructions for Abram and Lot, even though they were brethren, what happens? (laughs) It was easier to separate than it was to work through the strife. Do you notice that? The easier path. Hey, let's just go two different ways. Let's separate, then work through it. In the Hebrew, this word strife, it means to quarrel or to dispute. Disobedience. Disobedience had led them to Egypt. Disobedience had resulted in a dynamic where they had both attained more possessions than the land could support. How interesting it is that a failure to trust God's promises had led to a dynamic whereby there was strife between brothers. And the easier path, the easier thing was to separate than to reconcile. I hope you know this. Separation is always the result of strife. But why do you think so many churches split? Strife. Or all kinds of things governmental authority, missional approach, doctrinal belief. Strife roots. And instead of working through that strife, it's just easier to separate. Well, you start a church down the street, and we'll do our thing right here. Like, why do, you, why do you think some 50% of marriages fail? <laughs> strife. It's easier to separate than to work through issues over money or jobs or where the family lives, sex, parental approaches. In your life, why is it that some of your friendships have fallen into disarray? The answer? Strife, right? Hurt feelings? Envy? How about politics? They said 7% of friendships today have, have, have ruined because of this particular political climate. We can't get along. Strife. Easier to separate. While it's true that this is the natural approach, this separation, <laughs> it's what Abraham and Lot did, Right? Separation in the presence of strife, we do it because it's the simplest solution. Here's the irony. This is something you need to note. Separating with the person that you have beef with never solves the problem. Separating because of strife never deals with the strife. As a matter of fact, the strife remains and it will only get worse, it'll only fester. Think about it. Think about what results in this separation of Lot and Abram. Now there's a lot of things that happen, but in in the largest sense, Lot's descendants, he'd have two sons, they'd grow into two nations. They'd be known as the Moabites and the Ammonites. And those two people groups would what? Be at constant war with the descendants of Abraham. Here they are, their households aren't getting along, so they're like, the solution to this strife is that we separate. The irony is that they end up becoming nations that do what? Get along? No, they fight over and over. As a matter of fact, it even gets bitter, like vindictive. That's why instead of simply separating from the person that you have an issue with, the ultimate remedy is to address the underlying issue creating strife. Once again, think back to this example Abraham and Lot. What was the cause of their strife? We're told it was all their possessions. There's all this stuff, the land couldn't support it, caused friction. All of the stuff that they had gotten from Egypt, instead of separating, what should they have done? They, had, they should have gotten rid of the stuff. They shouldn't have had it. It was Pharaoh's. They should have sent it all back. This ain't worth it. I love you, man. We're brothers. We have faith in Jesus. Instead of separating, let's work through this. Let's get rid of the junk, the essence, the source of this conflict. Is it really worth you having all this stuff for us to not be friends anymore? Like so often, think back to the friendships that have failed in your life. Think back to the reason that they failed. Was it really worth it? Honestly, most of the time we end up with beef over the stupidest things. We lose valuable friendships over The tackiest of of, of reasons. How silly. They should have gotten rid of their stuff so they could have remained together. Now, while the application of this point should center or could center on church life, I could talk about that or even friendships, how this applies to friendships. I want to apply this working through strife instead of just separating. I want to illustrate how this works in, 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 in marriage because I think that it's the greatest of illustrations. If there is strife in your marriage, understand your natural tendency will be to separate. Now, sure, we recognize ultimate separation, marital separation. It's the big D word, right? It manifests in divorce, the ultimate separating. But this is what you don't realize. Smaller separations begin much earlier. That there are smaller separations, smaller fissures that lead to that explosion, that ultimate separation. Kind of like that there are swarms of small earthquakes that let you know the big event's coming. The big event just doesn't happen without any warning. There are things that occur that build up. These, what I would call micro separations, (laughs) they're not overt, they're not obvious. Sometimes, because of some strife between you and your spouse, the separation is just, you Just you end up deciding that you're just going to spend a few extra nights out with your girlfriends or your buddies. Instead of going home and having to deal, like you're just, let's just let it cool off. I'm just going to be away a little bit more. Just not in a big hurry to get home. You know, sometimes it's because of strife. A separation might look like, going to bed early so that you can avoid a conversation (laughs) or drowning yourself in Netflix so that you don't have to talk. You can avoid the conflict. And yet, while it's the path of least resistance, understand this approach, micro-separations, it is just as counterproductive and as destructive as yelling, assigning blame, or constant argumentation. Avoiding an issue doesn't make the issue go away, nor does it make the issue get better. The only real solution to strife, the only one that will ensure a separation doesn't result, is to instead what? Isolate the underlying reason causing the strife, and then deal with it accordingly. If the strife at home is the stress that you're experiencing at work, or the late hours you're spending in the office, the remedy? The remedy isn't to blame your wife or kids or, for that matter, veg out when you get home and avoid interactions. It makes it worse. The remedy might instead be to find another job or create proper boundaries. No job is worth losing your family. If the strife at home can be attributed to differences in, let's say, like parental approach, the remedy? Isn't to accuse the other spouse of being soft or to claim your daddy's approach is fine because you just turned out so well. You didn't. I've met you. <laughs> Daddy did it. I'm just fine. No. no. <laughs> the remedy is not to advocate the role altogether. Just be like, whatever, you, just, you, you handle discipline, I'm out. It's all separation. Instead, what's the remedy? Okay, we have this strife, we have this disagreement, so we need to work through it. And that will require some compromise, a strategy, something we can agree on for handling how we discipline our children, something we can agree on. If the strife at home is the burden of mounting financial debt, obligations, maybe the remedy is to sell everything to pay off your debt, to downsize, to something more manageable. You know, it's amazing. Almost 30% of marriages fail directly because of finances. Yeah, you might really want that new house, car, or fishing boat. But do you want to be enjoying those things alone? Like, do you want those things at the expense of your family because they create strife? Once again. The easiest thing to do when strife exists is to allow space to develop between you and those you love. And yet, as we'll see in the coming weeks, illustrated by Abram and Lot, separation, it's not only unhealthy, but it never works out in the end. You know, the altar, the tent, Abram's relationship with the world and with heaven, How sad it is when you consider that on account of Abram's disobedience and now the decision to separate instead of work through his strife, what results? (laughs) Abram loses his friend. He loses a brother. He loses Lot. You know, the really cool thing about this journey, this journey of faith, this journey that we're all on, the journey with God, is that we travel it, not alone. The part that I find so awesome is that we get to, to embark on the journey with people who will also get to enjoy the destination with. Like never forget there are only two things you'll take to heaven: your memories and the friends you make them with. That's it. Your stuff ain't going, ain't going to make it. If you allow strife to cause a separation, <laughs> here's the dirty little secret. You need to deal with it now because if not, guess when you'll have to deal with it. I never want to see that person again because when I do, I feel real awkward inside. They're over there on that side of the room and so I go over to the other side of the room and I'm like, don't make eye contact because we've got this weird thing going on between us. Deal with it now because you really want that dynamic in heaven? I know we're before the throne of God, but I still haven't resolved my issues with Larry. I'm just feeling real awkward over here with the other saints. Just deal with it. Get over it. Move beyond it. Isolate the strife and deal with it. Why, why, why? Would any of us allow petty strife to rob us of the incredible joy of having people in our tent that we'll also have the pleasure of enjoying heaven with somewhere in the future? I love that. Strife, it ain't worth it. Obey God follow God and value most the people you get to walk with. And so, Father, Lord,